Well, if you would, uh, turn with me to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. We are continuing in our series this morning where we are teaching through a new confession of faith, or Emmaus. So this morning, we'll be looking at the doctrine of creation. And we'll do this by considering Genesis chapter 1, which of course, as you know, is the very opening chapter of the Bible. In the 20th century, there was a French philosopher by the name of Jean-Paul Sartre, who is actually no friend of the Christian worldview. But he nonetheless pointed something out that I think is quite true. He pointed out that the basic philosophical problem we face is that something rather than nothing is there. Today you woke up to something and not nothing. You woke up in a universe that was here long before you got here. You woke up in a physical body, a physical frame. You woke up under the warmth and the light of the sun in the sky above. And it's worth thinking carefully today about why that is. Why is it that something rather than nothing is there? Let's look to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, and we'll just read verse 1 of Genesis chapter 1. This will be our starting point for today. Verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the word of the Lord. So here we have it. We have the answer we're looking for. We have the reason why something rather than nothing is there. It's because in the beginning, God created. Now, for most of us, this verse is incredibly familiar. If your background is anything like mine, like if you grew up in church, then you know this verse by heart. Or you can recite it from memory because you've been hearing it for years, decades. And so maybe for you, as you hear this verse today, maybe for you it's lost a bit of its luster. Perhaps it's been a while since you thought deeply about this verse. Perhaps this verse has been collecting dust on a shelf somewhere in the far recesses of your imagination. Perhaps it's been a long time since the verse we just read has leapt off the page for you and made your heart want to sing and worship. If that's the case this morning, then I want to remind you of why it is that this particular verse matters so very much for your life and why it matters so very much for everything. Everything. And so I want to do that by looking at three truths that Genesis reveals about the doctrine of creation. Let me just give you an idea of where we're going. Here are the three things, the three truths we are going to look at. Number one, Genesis shows us what God created. Number two, Genesis shows us how God created. And number three, Genesis shows us 
who God created. What God created, how God created, and who God created. Look with me first at the what. What did God create? In many cases in the ancient world, the idea that people had was that there were different gods who created different things. There might be a God who created the sun, right? There, there might be a God who created the land. There might be a God who created the sea and so on and so forth. Another common way of thinking was that the universe was the result of a battle between two gods. There are two gods who are duking it out and one of the gods defeats the other. And and so the thinking went that the God who won used the material parts of the God who was defeated to create the world we now see and experience. And so think of what a contrast Genesis 1-1 is, right? As a point of major contrast, what Genesis is saying is that there are not many gods, there are not warring gods, there's not a God for each thing. No, instead, there is one living and true God who is responsible for everything. This is why we said in the Nicene Creed just a moment ago, or the Apostles' Creed, rather, that God the Father Almighty created the heavens and the earth. And we say in the Nicene Creed as well, that he created all things visible and invisible. This is the reason. God is the reason Why everything that's there is there. The scriptures, of course, are emphatic about this. Beginning right here in Genesis chapter 1, but extending throughout the entire Bible. Let's look a little bit at what scripture says about this. For instance, the apostle John at the very outset of his gospel account elaborates on this when he tells us that in the beginning, so there's that language from Genesis, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And listen to this, through him, through this Word, all things were made. And without this Word, without him, was not anything made that was made. You flip over to the very next book of the Bible, the book of Acts, and you find Paul addressing a group of philosophers in Athens. And he says to these philosophers that God gives to mankind life and breath and everything. Everything. Paul says that it is only in this God that we can live and move and have our being in the first place. And then there's Paul once again in Romans chapter 11. We're in a moment of of overflowing worship. Paul erupts with this confession. He says of God that from him, from God, and through him, and to him, are all things. All things. Speaking of worship, we read in Revelation chapter 4 that John sees the heavenly throne of God. He sees it in a vision And John sees that around the throne, there are 24 elders who are casting down their crowns before the Lord. And they are crying out, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory 
and honor and power. And here's why God is so worthy. The 24 elders say, for you, O God, created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. So just think about that. Imagine it, that the worship being offered in heaven has, as one of its dominant themes, the reality that God created everything. Friends, what John and Paul and the 24 elders are telling us is that everything we experience, everything we see, every purpose and function of all that exists All of it is governed by this one ultimate reality that in the beginning, God created. One theologian tells us why it is so important that we understand this. He says that in the biblical imagination, the fact that God created all things is one of the chief characteristics that distinguishes him from all other beings. This theologian continues, he says, everything besides God is a creature. And since everything other than God has been created, only God deserves the acknowledgement and praise given to the creator. What this theologian is getting at right there when he writes those words is what many in the church have referred to as the creator-creature distinction. The creator-creature distinction. Now this distinction is absolutely essential to the doctrine of creation. To show you why, let me just go back to the book of Romans for a moment. In Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about the untold evil that occurs when the distinction between the creator and his creation is erased. Paul says that humanity claiming to be wise became foolish. He says that left to ourselves, we will expend all our energy around the clock in order to suppress the truth about God so that we can exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling created things. So what Paul is saying there is that The great sin of humanity, the the great transgression we have all committed is that we have abolished the creator-creature distinction, right? We have offered to creation the worship that is due to God alone, to the creator alone. And when you think about it, this is a tragedy of epic proportion. I mean, God created this world to be a theater of his glory. He created this world and everything in it to be a gift to us so that we might know him. We're supposed to look at all of God's creation. And for us, it is meant to be a lens through which we marvel at who he is. But instead, Looking no further than what is right in front of us, we have misused his creation. Treating it not as a lens, but as a blindfold. We have sought glory 
in the gift rather than in the giver. And one of the tragedies of this is that when you worship God's gifts instead of God, they never deliver what you're looking for, do they? They always, always become distorted into something that was not intended. You know how this works. You've seen it. Ample examples are everywhere you look. To give just one common example, one of the things that God created is human sexuality. It's one of the gifts he has given. But a man who worships sex as his God comes to discover that what was meant to be a natural, pleasurable, good gift becomes something that enslaves him. He he becomes chained to a destructive path wherein he learns to enjoy only perversion, which is not enjoyment at all, not true enjoyment. Or imagine a woman who makes her family into a false god. Rather than viewing her children as a gift entrusted to her by the creator, she begins to worship them as little gods. Little gods with runny noses. Little gods with spaghetti caked onto their dinosaur shirts. You're like, that's really specific. Well, I have kids. I know how it works. Over time, the inevitable result of this is that her children will disappoint her. They were never meant to sustain the awesome weight of her worship. And so they will always fail to meet her expectations her hopes for them, her dreams for them. And in the end, the worship of her family will leave her empty and unfulfilled. C.S. Lewis very wisely and insightfully puts his finger on why this is. Listen to what he says. He says, natural loves, created loves that are allowed to become gods Do not remain loves. They are still called so. We'll still say that we love these created things. But what they really become are complicated forms of hatred. If you worship the creation, then in some way, shape, or form, you will end up despising it. It will make you miserable. But if you worship the creator, then it will only enhance your enjoyment of the things that he has made. You understand? So friends, my admonition to you is this, this morning. Be careful with your worship. Be careful with your worship. Consider your own life here for a moment. As you interact with the created order, as you interact with the world around you, are there ways that you have been sucked in to worshiping the creation rather than the creator? Have you been blurring those lines in some way? Is there misplaced worship in your life that you need to repent of this morning? Let's not miss an opportunity. To do that, 
The Lord is speaking. He is inviting us to repent. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. It is his kindness that summons us to worship him and him alone. Listen, when it comes to this world, when it comes to life under the sun, you can only truly enjoy something if you are not worshiping it. The best way to do that is to remember what God created. Let's also remember how God created. That's what I want us to look at next. How did God create? What does Genesis 1-1 have to teach us about the manner in which God created the world? Let's start with this. Think with me for just a moment about the way we typically speak about the beginning of something. I I know for a fact that when you leave church today, you're going to say something like this. You know what? Pastor Tyler's sermon today, I think it's going to be the beginning of my love for the doctrine of creation. Go ahead and say it. I won't stop you. Let me give a more realistic example. At some point today, you might say this. We need to make sure we're at home this afternoon because the Chiefs game is beginning at 3.25 p.m. Amen. I noticed you didn't say amen for the first example I gave, but that's okay. That's okay. Listen, when we talk about beginnings in this way, right? When we, when we talk about beginnings of this sort, we are not talking about the same kind of beginning that Genesis is talking about. When Moses writes, in the beginning, he is talking about the beginning in an absolute sense. Sermons, football games, these things have beginnings. They can cause beginnings. But when we read in the beginning, there is no beginning like that because this beginning is the beginning of absolutely everything. It stands alone. It is unique. And if that is true, if that really is the case, then what follows from it is the idea that God created the world from nothing. He created the world from nothing. So when we look at the book of Genesis, when we look at how the Bible begins, we are not talking about God taking something that was already there, taking already existing materials and using that to fashion the world we now see. God didn't do that. He didn't make the world out of something that was already there. He didn't need something to already be there. Now what we're talking about is God creating the heavens and the earth out of nothing. Despite the absence of anything, God created everything. And he did it simply by speaking. When God spoke, things supernaturally appeared. When God spoke, things miraculously materialized. The next handful of verses show us this. Look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 3. It tells us, and God said, 
let there be light. And what happens? There was light. Or look a little lower at verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind on the earth. The next four words are important. Verse 11 tells us, and it was so. It was so. Friends, this, what we're talking about here, this is why Christians for centuries have insisted that God made the world out of nothing. He created our universe and everything in it simply by speaking it into existence. And it's not just Genesis that teaches us this. No, Psalm 33 also confirms this, where it says that God spoke and the world came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Psalm 148, the psalmist calls upon the sun and the moon and the stars and the galaxies. And he says, let all of them praise the name of the Lord together. For he commanded and they were created. Fast forward to the New Testament. Paul says in Romans 4.17 that God calls into existence things that do not exist. Hebrews 11 confirms this where it says that by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So everything we see in the world around us, everything we experience, everything we can taste and touch, every star, every species, every, every kind of vegetation, every compound in the periodic table, Every sound that greets our ear, every shade and color and hue that greets our eye, every pulsation of your heart, every synapsis firing in your brain, every breath of oxygen that you take into your lungs, all of it, friends, all of it was created supernaturally with just a word. And you know what? Here's what I believe. I believe this with all my heart, that one of the reasons that our culture feels so off the rails morally is because what we're talking about here right now has been virtually banished from public life. If you believe that God made the world supernaturally by, by simply speaking, you're a weirdo. Even worse, you're a fundamentalist. This understanding of origins is not trending. This is not the way to win friends and influence people. This will not earn you a seat at the table of high culture. Carl Truman explains what was lost when this view became marginalized. He talks about how Darwin's origin of species was a hinge point where things begin to change. Just listen to what Truman says. He says, Darwin's theory of natural selection effectively made any theological claim concerning the origins of life irrelevant. One could, if one wished, believe that a divine hand guided the process, 
But the process itself could be adequately explained without the need for any such supernatural hypothesis. It can be explained without any reference to the transcendent. Friends, this is taken for granted. Think about just about any academic institution that exists in our country. Look across the landscape of of popular entertainment. Or just think of some of the names that are are associated with talking about the origins of life. The mystery of the universe. Right? Names like Richard Dawkins. Stephen Hawking. Right? These are now household names. But these are also people who have made it normal for us to talk about the beginning of all things without any reference to a divine creator. And so it's now uncommon for the everyday man on the street to have a non-supernatural understanding about the origins of life. It is normal for us to no longer feel a need for there to be a creator. Back in 2005, the author David Foster Wallace gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College. And in this speech, he told a story about two young fish who are swimming through the ocean. And these two fish are greeted by a much older, wiser fish who says to them, hello, boys, how's the water? And the two of them, as they're swimming away from the older fish, they ask, what's water? Friends, the non-supernatural view of origins is like water. And we're like fish. You are swimming in it every day. I am swimming in it every day. And if we're perfectly honest, there are times when the non-supernatural view is so pervasive that the, 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 the truth claims of Scripture can start to feel a little less durable. Because they feel so out of place in the water. It's easy to begin to wonder, what I'm believing about this, is it really true? Is it really true that God made the world out of nothing? Or is there some some other explanation that doesn't require God? That doesn't require me to believe all these unpopular things that Christianity requires of me? And when we start asking those questions... There is an entire cultural, intellectual infrastructure that's there to sell you a much different story than the one that Scripture tells to us. They're often so ready to offer you a much different starting point than what Genesis offers. And I'll add this. Nowhere is this more evident. Nowhere is it more apparent than in how our culture views what it means to be a human being. This is the greatest point of impact. This is the biggest flashpoint. Which is why I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about who God created. We've looked at the what and the how. Now, I want us to ask, who did God create? Look with me a little further into Genesis chapter 1. I want to read for us verses 26 through 28. 
Starting in verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in those verses, we're being told that within the created order, Human beings are not like other creatures. Human beings are not like the plants. We're not like the animals. We're not like the insects or the birds. No, we are creatures of a different kind. We are the only creature under heaven of whom it can be said that we are stamped with the very image of our creator. Now, let me tell you what this doesn't mean. This does not mean that we are semi-divine. Remember the creator-creature distinction. We do not have a quasi-divine nature. That's not what that means. No, instead, what it means is that we are unique. Something about who we are genuinely reflects something about who God is. If you read on into the second chapter of Genesis... This only becomes more apparent. Verse 7 tells us that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into the man's nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. He became a living soul, a living self. So when we think about what it means to be human, It begins, yes, with the reality that we all bear God's image, but one of the most significant and important aspects of that reality is how our existence begins. It begins with the dust of the ground, which God made from nothing. God took that dust and he formed a man. Man is made out of physical matter. Man is material. But listen, that physical matter, that materiality is also combined with spiritual reality, right? The the very breath of God breathing life into that dust. What I want you to see is that human nature is such that there is both a material part of us and an immaterial part of us. We are both physical, made of dust, And we are spiritual, breathed upon by God. This is why the Bible often refers to us as being body and soul. Genesis 30, or not Genesis, I'm sorry. Psalm 31, 9 says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted away from grief. My soul and my body also. So this distress that the psalmist is experiencing, it's affecting all of him, right? It's affecting affecting him physically in his body, 
and it's affecting him spiritually in his soul. Jesus also speaks along these same lines. He says to his disciples in Matthew 10, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. So our body can be killed. Our body can be destroyed, but our soul is in the hands of God. But not only are we body and soul, we are also male or female. The material, physical part of us includes the reality of our divinely assigned sex. Every person in this room has either an XX chromosome or an XY chromosome. And I feel like I should say this. That is a very good thing. That is a very good thing. I mean, just just think about what God says after he creates man and woman in his image. What does he say? He says, that is very good. Very good. If you are a man, it is good that you are a man. If you are a woman, it is good that you are a woman. This shouldn't need to be said, but I feel like it does. Because literally like every piece of cultural messaging you're going to encounter on a daily basis is going to treat your sex, your gender as a problem. As a problem that can only be fixed through sheer and utter disdain. But God doesn't disdain it. He doesn't disdain the way he made you. To him. Your maleness, if you're a man, or your femaleness, if you're a woman, it is very good. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Let's look at this a little more closely. After God creates man, he says in Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man should be alone. I will create a helper fit for him. Skip down to verse 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the man's ribs and he made it into a woman and brought her to the man. So here, finally, the opening chapters of Genesis culminate with the crowning gift that God has given to the world. Both man and woman together, side by side, having dominion over God's world, displaying God's image, bearing his likeness in a way that is equal, yet distinct and and complementary. Friends, I, I can't emphasize how in the ancient world, what is being said here, what is being claimed by the book of Genesis, it would have been shocking. It would have been scandalous. I mean, this was written, like this, this book was written at a time where it was said and thought that only a king could bear a divine image. If you wanted to bear the likeness of a god, you had to be the head honcho, right? You had to be the unquestioned monarch. But what Moses is claiming is radically different than that. He's claiming that Adam and Eve together and their children after them, all of them together would bear the image and likeness of God. Right? God does not limit his image to an earthly king. No, instead he says, I am the king. And so everybody that I make 
is stamped with my royal image. If you were to stand out in front of the United Center in Chicago, Illinois, the thing that would catch your eye is there's a statue of Michael Jordan. It's striking. It's right there front and center. Of course, MJ is not going to be out there in front of the United Center standing out in the frigid Chicago wind, but his image sure is. His likeness is there to remind everybody who drives by, this is the house that Jordan built. Friends, that's a lot like who we are. God has made us to be living, breathing statues that he has set up to bear his image to the world. We reflect his likeness. We represent his dominion and authority over creation. And in Genesis, he calls us to spread his image all over the world. To reflect him to the ends of the earth that he has made. He tells us, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it so that one day the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters are covering the sea. This is what it means to be human. As creatures who are male and female, body and soul. We bear the image of our creator so that the world would be a theater of his glory. We are living proof that this cosmos is the house that Yahweh built. But at the same time, we have fallen short, haven't we? We have egregiously missed the mark. We were created for glory, but instead we have chosen to live in the squalor of our disgrace. One of the most destructive things about sin is that it has disrupted our ability to image God properly. Yes, we still bear his image. He hasn't taken it away from us in his grace. But the truth is that his image in us has been mangled and marred by our sinfulness. We come into this world as creatures. Our relationship to our creator is shattered. It's, it's broken from the very start. And in a fallen world, this also speaks to what it means to be a human. To be human is to be a creature capable of profound greatness. But ever since sin entered the world, being human also means... Being a creature that is bent toward evil. We have a habit of defacing God's image in ourselves. And defacing his image in others. And so human history in many ways can be read as a long parade of dehumanization. This is no less true of the present though. It's not just the past. It's not just history. It's right now. Right? Our contemporary world faces its own set of problems. We have our own ways of undercutting what it means to be human. The transgender revolution that is so very popular, that has taken our culture by storm, it champions the idea that one's inwardly felt gender can be somehow disconnected from one's biological sex. Friends, what that is when you boil it all down? is it's a distortion of what it means to be human. 
Or think about abortion. Pro-choice advocates maintain that a child in a mother's womb is only a child if the woman carrying that child says so. Otherwise, it's just a clump of tissue that can be disposed of. Once again, a distortion of what it means to be human. How about AI? Artificial intelligence. Surely you've been seeing a lot of things in the news about that. How does that impact the way we understand what it means to be human? That's a challenge that we as the church are going to face. I mean, I I came across an article the other day where uh, the writer of this article was was voicing concern over the ethics of AI girlfriends. If, If one were so inclined, they could go somewhere online and create their own AI girlfriend. You can customize her appearance. You can customize her personality. Now, just think about how that might impact the way men and women interact with each other. I mean, you think about a kid who is raised on that, right? A young kid who has spent hours and hours and hours with an AI girlfriend. What's going to happen when he goes on his first date with an actual human girlfriend? That's going to have affected the way he views women. It's going to have affected the way he views what it means to be human in untold ways. I'm not bringing these things up to outrage you or get a rise out of you or talk to you about how the world is going to hell in a handbasket. I'm not trying to get you afraid of the world. As Christians, we shouldn't be scared. God tells us over and over in his word, do not fear, do not be afraid, for I am with you. My presence goes before you. So we don't need to wring our hands or clutch our pearls over these issues. Instead, we can look at these things as an opportunity to champion the Bible's vision for what it means to be human. Friends, these issues abound in the first place because so few people have a vision for what it means to flourish as a human being. They need a witness. They need a witness to show them that God's ways are better. And as Christians, we get to be those witnesses. That's who we are. We get to witness to what human flourishing looks like in a lost and broken world. This is why Christ has redeemed us. It's why he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is what Colossians 3 tells us, that in Christ we are called to put off the old self. And we are called to put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of, his, of its creator. Friends, like we sang about just a, a little while ago, we are a new creation, right? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Just think about what this means for your life. Think about the opportunities that you have to live as a redeemed Renewed image bearer. What about you Christian parents in the room? Moms and dads. Are you talking to your children regularly about what it means to be human? Are you reminding your children? It is good that you are a boy. It's good that you are a girl. 
Are you reminding them that they and everyone they meet is made in the image of God? This is so important, friends, for our children to understand. What about you church members? Are you reminding each other of this? When was the last time that you looked a fellow church member in the eye and spoke life-giving words that dignified them as a redeemed image bearer of God? How about our use of social media? When was the last time you paused to remember that on the other side of that pixelated avatar that says things that just drive you up the wall? When was the last time you remembered of them? No, on the other side of that screen is a human being, an image bearer, a living soul just like me who needs Jesus. You see, friends, each and every day we have in front of us a chance to tell the world, this is how to bear God's image. This is what we were made to do. We get to invite the world, come to Jesus and learn his ways. Learn to imitate him. As one of your elders, I want to point you to one more opportunity. Or share an invite initiative. I told you we were going to talk about this. You were at our members meeting a couple weeks ago. I told you we wouldn't be shutting up about it. Our share and invite initiative is an opportunity that you have to engage lost people in your life. Listen, one of the most humane things that we can do for another image bearer is introduce them to the perfect image. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation who has come to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross. So who are you going to introduce to him? Do you think about the week ahead of you? Who do you need to talk to? Who is God putting on your heart? Have you been dragging your feet? Don't delay any longer. Don't let that chance pass you by.